I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a podcast on everything from employment to aircraft carriers. We are a bunch of policy nuts based in Namma, Bengaluru, and we like bringing fresh perspectives to Indian affairs and Indian perspectives to global affairs. I'm Manoj, a journalist, and I'm Shambhavi, a cell biologist. Hello and welcome to All Things Policy. Today we have a very special episode with a couple of uh, spe- uh, special guests. We have Dr. Chandra Rekha and Dr. Indrani Talukdar, the Indian Council for World Affairs, who are scholars on Russia. And as I record this on the 14th of August, we've just come out of a seven-hour session where we've extensively discussed everything about Russia from a recent baby boom in Moscow to actual boom booms that uh, <laughs> Russia is dropping in Syria. So I'm Anirudh Kanisetti and I'm joined today by Aditya Ramanathan and we're going to be talking to Drs. Rekha and Talukdar about a variety of issues uh, relating to Russia, how Russia sees the world and what Russia is doing to influence the world. Um, so let's begin by asking you both a very general question. Can you tell us a little bit about Russia's worldview? How does Russia see the world? How does Russia see this concept of uh, Eurasia, as it's called? Uh, hi, Aniru. Thanks. So uh, Russia's worldview, uh, including the Eurasian perspective. So uh, first and foremost, uh, let us see Russia from the three school of thoughts. That is the statist, the westernist, and the civilizationist uh, school of thought, which we see from the Tsarist time. It is not new. It has been prevalent. And if you uh, go with the policies of the Tsars, we see that how each one of them have used it. Like the Peter the Great has actually, uh, you know, used a westernist uh, school of thought, uh, so and so forth. So, um, like even now. If we see Russia is again, uh, you know, going through this three school of thoughts, uh, but more uh, into the civilizationist uh, school of thought, uh, based uh, more on the Eurasian uh, identity, uh, which is uh, blended with nationalism and identity. which we can uh, talk about that Alexander Dugin, the political scientist who has been talking about uh, the Eurasian identity of uh, Russia. Uh, more uh, so, why we need to understand why Eurasia? Because uh, Russia, if you see in the Soviet Union time, during the Gorbachev's time or uh, Brezhnev and all, they were into uh, this, uh, you know, Westernist school of thought, though it was also following the statist uh, school of thought, but uh, not much on the civilizationist uh, thought school of thought. But uh, the way the West has, uh, you know, um, behaved or the actions towards Russia uh, it actually forced somewhere Russia to, uh, you know, give up on its uh, Western school of thought, uh, which we see more uh, in the second term of Putin. So, Dr. Talda, can I just like ask you to elaborate a little bit on these three labels that you use, right? So, if I'm getting this right, you're saying that uh, Brezhnev and so on followed a Westernist, statist kind of way of approaching things, which meant that they were inclined to engage with the West. Yeah. They tended to believe in. Uh, relatively liberal ideas of global order and so on and so forth or am I way off? See, uh, more it is not about the liberal thought process of uh, West but it is it's more about you know how to decrease the tension between uh, Soviet Union and West. Hmm. So for them that was the more leaning 
because uh, Russia, uh, Soviet Union at that point of time, though it was, uh, you know, going ahead with the arms race and all, but at the same time, it was also, uh, you know, understanding that how the Soviet republics, they themselves had also started, like, uh, you know, having their own independence and all. So it's like both things were going together. And uh, for Russia, they understood these leaders that uh, more they are, uh, you know, pumping money in the defense, the economic aspect, you know, the social or the public aspect, the welfare aspect was going down. So uh, leaders like uh, Brezhnev or uh, Nikita Khrushchev, they also Gorbachev, they also understood that uh, it is better to have a pro-West kind of a, you know, uh, school of thought, hmm. which helps them. But at the same time, uh, when I say that it has also the statist, uh, where the state is powerful. So it's not that they wanted to compromise on that aspect. It just wanted a friendly relationship with the West so that they do not have to, uh, you know, uh, invest more on the defense aspect. Hmm. So can you tell us a little more about the, the, the final school of thought that you mentioned, namely the civilization school? What is a, what is a Eurasian civilization and why is Russia a good example of a Eurasian civilization? So uh, again, uh, you know, whether we want to see it or not, but uh, West definitely has influenced a lot on uh, Russia's uh, policies. Uh, because uh, if we see that West has never, uh, you know, given... Russia the equal platform which Russia has always wanted to have it and uh, Gorbachev is uh, seen as a kind of a traitor within Russia but uh, his policies uh, the new thinking and all it was not I don't see it as a weaker kind of a policies but it was more of a rational and a practical way of looking uh, where uh, he wanted Russia to actually, you know, uh, become more uh, strong in its own way. And also it was also looking at the uh, the reality where uh, Russia was heading towards or the Soviet Union was heading towards it. Now, what happened was uh, like Alexander Dugin and all, uh, not only him, then uh, Primakov, uh, the prime minister uh, during the Yeltsin's time, Initially, even he was, uh, you know, into the pro-Western things and all. But again, the actions of the West actually made these people to understand and realize that, uh, you know, Russia has to uh, now change its uh, look from the West till uh, towards the East. And uh, Dugin then started to bring back this Eurasia aspect because uh, from the Zari side, uh, the geographical aspect of uh, Russia is definitely in the Eurasian side because both sides it has expanded uh, its geography, uh, the territorial aspect. So Dugin actually uh, capitalized on this aspect of it and uh, gave the new uh, civilizationists. And civilizationists, if you see it, the very word talks about that uh, how Russia is a great civilization the Russian culture is great you know then uh, there comes the religious aspect as well uh, the orthodox Christianity so all this uh, is blended 
and with putin he has actually uh, blended with nationalism and patriotism to uh, make the russian public uh, not go into the western culture but more into uh, you know look inward on russia so that uh, you know russia can actually uh, he can actually capitalize on making uh, you know russia more not pro west but uh, an individual great russia dr rekha uh i think more or less indrani has laid the foundation but she has given a, a very good background as to how russia has got a world view especially in terms of its racial identity uh so uh, it won't be wrong to continue uh, this uh, idea that russia primarily associates itself as the eurasian power uh, its identity is always and has remained uh more towards eurasia than associating itself with the european uh identity uh but in the modern context if you see russia's world view is that that uh monopoly of power cannot be with uh exercised by a single entity it needs to be disseminated decision making process should be uh, distributed equally among all international players uh, so uh, in this context uh, there is also a sense of acceptance by russia in terms of its uh, capabilities and limitations if it is got a world view it means it needs to have the goods to back it so that goods can be backed only when you are self aware of what your capabilities are what your potentials are and what your drawbacks are based on this russia has gone ahead and moved forward in international relations which today is more of a resurging foreign policy but uh, the limitations being that uh, somewhere down the line it is more uh, associated with its military strength and capabilities not seen as an overall global uh, power that every other country would associate itself with especially since russia has a very huge legacy of soviet union there will be a constant comparison of seeing russia's current capability to what it was in the past so that is something that russia also knows it cannot get over it but what russia also knows is that it has to move forward and how it has to move forward is only possible if it sheds the soviet uh, foreign policy of not accommodating interest of all the countries earlier soviet union was taking into consideration of interest of those countries which were communist countries but today if you see russia is more open russia is more accommodating and russia is more exploring in understanding what other countries or what other partners can offer for russia today so both of you have mentioned that we've talked a great deal about how the soviet legacy carries forward in, into modern russia's foreign policy so i'd like to understand a little more about the collapse of the soviet union in the way that it led to this reorientation that that we are discussing at this point dr tada you mentioned that russia feels like it was unfairly treated dr rekha you mentioned that uh, russia now has an understanding Uh, that has got to be more multilateral in its approach to things and that i did it has never believed that a unipolar di- distribution of power is the way to go uh, so let's talk about this so called unipolar movement that happened with the fall of the soviet union can you tell me a little more about how the west reacted how it impacted russia so uh, if you see like the way us looks into and it has somewhere uh, you know 
I won't use the word irritated Russia, but uh, it has definitely, you know, uh, disappointed. disappointed Russia because uh, U.S. actually takes that uh, U.S. is the victor. And hmm. that is why it has been able to, you know, so-called establish its unipolarity. And uh, Russia, uh, as I said, that uh, be it Gorbachev or Yeltsin, they never expected that, uh, you know, U.S. particularly will, uh, you know, uh, sideline Russia, including uh, after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. So uh, Putin, uh, when he came to power, he knew what status uh, Russia was into, be it the economic aspect or the foreign policy aspect, because that time even the Chechen war was also going on and all. But uh, Putin, because he understood the practicality, so he also went with, uh, you know, he was not aggressive or, uh, you know, he was not trying to reassert uh, Russia's power immediately. He took his time, you know, put the base of Russia again. So where the economic boom happened uh, because of the energy, uh, where the prices went up, and uh, Putin was able to, uh, you know, uplift the population's living standard and all. So it was both domestic as well as foreign policy because uh, the international events also helped uh, Putin somewhere to regroup uh, Russia again uh, slowly and steadily uh, because uh, we have this uh, Afghanistan war which uh, US had started because of the 9-11 and all these issues where if we remember Putin was the first leader actually to uh, offer condolence uh, to U.S. and uh, it opened up uh, the transit towards uh, Afghanistan. So it tried its level best to, uh, you know, have a good relationship. But at the same time, we see that, uh, you know, again, parallel things were also happening. Alexander Dugin's uh, Eurasian concept was also taking, uh, you know, stronger aspect uh, in itself. Then at the same time, uh, you know, we have the 2004 uh, color revolutions also happening. Then all these Eastern European countries, uh, they were also trying to lean more on the Western side, uh, NATO expansion, then the EU membership and all these things were also coming up. And uh, the way the West was also, uh, specifically U.S., was uh, treating uh, Russia. Because uh, though there was some kind of uh, rapprochement between uh, U.S. and uh, Russia, but in the genuine manner, it was not that, you know, which we see it in the actions uh, of uh, U.S. You have this confluence of circumstances in the 90s, uh, yeah. NATO expansion, and uh, the color revolutions. Hmm. How does uh, Dugin's ideology play into this? How does how is it a reaction to that, or is, does it come from something older? And how have Russians internalized those ideas today? So, as I said, the Eurasian concept, it's not nothing new. It was always there, including in the Tsarist time. That's why, uh, you know, the school of uh, thought process, civilizationist was always there. But Dugin actually took advantage of uh, whatever the situations was happening on ground in Russia. And uh, how I, like, I was continuing with that, that um, these events actually helped Russia to... Um, so if you see, uh, like, why I said that uh, Dugin's uh, concept actually was, uh, you know, uh, it took advantage of the events because, uh, again, this uh, the verbal 
promise between uh, US and Russia uh, where US actually backed off on the NATO enlargement and all so it's kind of uh, where I won't say that Dugin uh, you know was a power hungry person or something but it was more clear and it he understood that if Russia has to become a great power again it has to move away from the the western perspective and uh, you know pushed Russia to think uh, including the Kremlin uh, to think that uh, you know our, our future actually lies in Eurasia and more right now towards the pivot towards Asia and uh, for the people to internalize it again if you again go back to the czarist time catherine uh, like she also had a westernist uh, school of thought but it was not on the cultural aspect hmm. so russia if you see from its way back from the czarist time it always from the cultural aspect it always held on to the civilizationist or the orthodoxy so for citizens it it was not something uh, alien to them so uh, they did not have to compromise on their uh, you know aspects and all in fact now also if you see the russian public uh, it's only the elites which are more uh, you know the pro western culture the the middle class or the you know the other classes they are into the you know the civilizationist because uh, for them they are more into the conservative thought and uh, they actually think uh, like if you see human rights and all they are not much into all this and uh, in fact uh, putin uh, you know he also takes advantage of how the public goes and uh, like human rights for an example Putin talks about that um, who is best to talk about human rights because uh, most of the violations are in US also racism in the name of racism and all so he actually he understands the public and he uh, you know uh, like bangs on those sentiments and all and it actually uh, you know it's kind of the public also supports Putin's thought process and Putin also takes that support from it to uh, and you know i initially only i mentioned that most of russia's policies be it whoever it really depends on how west you know reacts to russia or how it looks into russia and uh, russian people are very uh, proud people they are proud of, about their culture and uh, as uh, during the interactions also rekha was mentioning that how they are resilient people and i was also talking about that how uh, the russian public is uh, into more about uh, they are more strong and they have more pride in their greater russia aspect so i think to gain actually uh, with uh, putin uh, banked on that and uh, one interesting aspect and more and more it is happening is uh, you know the younger lot i don't want to use the word propaganda uh, by the kremlin uh, but the you know the resurgence of uh, nationalism and patriotism the way putin is using it uh, to again garner the support from the youth uh, because uh, like as i had mentioned earlier in the interaction that uh, there is the scams which takes place 
you know in russia which is supported by putin not only for the youth but also the school children and uh, there putin keeps on talking uh, you know gives a feedback that how russia should not look towards west but you know look inward and the eurasian so Okay, so uh, Dr. Rekha, so um, I'd like to like draw draw a little more, uh, dive into a little more specific detail on the whole concept of Eurasia and how Russia is actually acting on it now. Um, so can you tell us a little more about how this whole pivot to Asia is working out and a little more about what Putin is doing specifically in Asia uh, with regards to, for example, China, uh, what he's doing in the far eastern regions of Russia? Uh, so basically this whole uh, concept of pivot to asia strategy was announced post ukraine crisis so there is a sense of uh, uh, there is a sense of diversification or a shift in uh, the traditional approach that russia has had in its foreign policy uh, where uh, the former soviet space occupied the primary focus of russia but with the announcement of pivot to asia strategy people started saying that now russia is going to make asia as its primary focus given the fact that you simultaneously you also have this asian century concept emerging where the people uh, analysts are arguing that uh, the future is in the hands of asian countries so uh, it has come at a very timely uh, situation uh, but how well russia is going to execute the pivot to asia strategy is what something we need to watch out for because the pivot to asia strategy of russia has limitations that is if you see the pattern with which it has executed the pivot to asia strategy it is more in terms of military diplomacy whether it is uh, now started uh, or uh, revived its defense cooperation with pakistan or uh, any other asian countries like vietnam and uh, indonesia malaysia you can see that apart from india and china now russia is focusing on geographical diversification of its defense markets not just that military diplomacy has reemerged in russia's foreign policy assertiveness so this uh, in a way uh, puts a setback to the way russia's uh, way of seeing pivot to asia strategy and the way it is being executed is something that we need to uh, divide and then monitor how it is going to be executed also the fact that uh, there is a reorientation with the announcement of pivot to asia strategy wherein we see that uh, given the past relations that it had with non west non nato countries and western allies with which it had minimal or no interaction at all today with the pivot to asia strategy it is able to forge ahead and develop ties with countries which were once or continue to be western allies such as pakistan for instance uh, but at the same time uh, there is also section of uh, people who mock the pivot to asia strategy saying that even though russia announced the pivot to asia strategy one being the fact that when was russia never there in asia even in the past russia was an active player in asian geopolitics so why the announcement coming now so there is that argument which is being floated and also the argument that if it is pivot to asia strategy 
then why is china given the utmost importance hmm. in this pivot to asia strategy so these debates are there these arguments are there uh, but it we need to bear in mind that keeping aside these arguments there is a certain level of national interest of russia that needs to be executed because today it is compelled to do so the ukraine crisis was a wake up call for russia that it needs to widen its horizon and unfortunately the 21st century geoeconomics is not favoring russia or russia is unable to execute it the way it needs to but somehow the military diplomacy has helped russia to move ahead so russia's revival of global status today and russia's revival of pivot to asia strategy is more towards di- military diplomacy and less in terms of geoeconomics this is where russia china partnership comes in given the fact that there the these two players are complementing each other on one hand you have china which is striving hard for power projection in international affairs uh, given the fact that there is a lack of achievement despite indigenization of uh, china's uh, defense industrial complex or even the military modernization process it is even today relying on russia for military assistance but at the same time the fragile nature of russia's economic growth performance has made russia look towards china for financial assistance and investments so in a way they are complementing each other but we cannot say that this is a full proof uh, strategic partnership there are drawbacks in the partnership because this partnership is marred by asymmetries and also there is a sense of mistrust so competition in the future between these two countries is unavoidable mm-hmm. but having said that shared interest and concerns will keep the momentum going with this partnership and that is something that india needs to monitor the new alliances that are taking place stronger alliances but at the same time i think uh, pivot to asia strategy all said and done also focuses on india so let me just uh, summarize to see if i'm all, if we're all on the same page up to this point right so we start off by talking about uh the way that russia sees the world we talked about this whole civilizational concept of eurasia we talked about how the the influence of alexander dugin actually permeates the way russia tries to operate in eurasia uh what happened with the color revolutions its feeling of betrayal and its its insecurities regarding the west uh which became very clear in 2014 as said dr rekha so 2014 leads to a so called pivot to asia which really turns out to be a pivot to china because of all the synergies in the relationship but there's also a lot of mistrust i think they have a shared land border and they came close to the brink of war historically yes. and and your your thesis is basically that uh the pivot to asia could work out well for india because there's so many opportunities for us uh so if i could just bring this podcast to a close my final overarching question to the both of you would be what are the opportunities you see for india in its relationship with russia and what do you think that we can do to do to do better in exploiting the trust that or really using the trust that russia and india have built up over the decades so um, like we have just celebrated the 71 years of the diplomatic relationship between india and russia uh, 
you know, when we talk about that we share a special and uh, privileged strategic partnership, uh, it is actually very important to understand. First and foremost, uh, like India and Russia doesn't have any kind of baggage, historical baggage first. Yes, we talk about that the trade volume is not uh, that much because uh, right now it just stands to 10.7 billion uh, whereas India's own bilateral uh, trade volume with China is much more. But however, uh, you know, I feel that uh, definitely we should, uh, you know, look forward to expand the uh, economic cooperation between uh, both the countries. But at the same time, we should also, uh, you know, give each other kind of, uh, you know, appreciation that despite the trade volume being less, still we are, uh, you know, uh, together uh, because uh, India and Russia also shares, uh, you know, a lot of convergences when it comes to the worldviews, like uh, both India and Russia uh, supports uh, United Nations, reformation in United Nations. Uh, they both, uh, you know, support that uh, there cannot be, uh, you know, dismantling of unipolarity where multipolarity has to come into the, you know, world order. Then uh, both the countries, uh, you know, do not support any kind of uh, internal intervention by external powers or military use or any kind of force for that matter. So uh, in that sense, uh, India and Russia uh, will continue in the similar pattern even in the future. Uh, Region-wise also, uh, we don't see much of a difference because uh, that actually, uh, why I say so, uh, like for an example, Russia was uh, instrumental on uh, bringing India in the platform of SCO. Then uh, we have BRICS, then uh, RIC is one format. And in fact, uh, if we remember, uh, Prime Minister Modi actually uh, praised uh, President Putin for you know bringing uh, Xi Jinping, uh, Putin and Modi himself in the sidelines uh, You know, after 12 years of gap uh, in the RIC format. Of course, in the foreign uh, minister level, this uh, meetings were happening but in uh, heads of the state it was not happening so uh, that again you know it's a important uh, action when it comes to India Russia relationship also because uh, as Rekha has mentioned that how uh, Russia is pivoting towards uh, Asia including with China so Russia would not want any kind of uh, you know I won't say imbalance but it doesn't want to have any kind of problematic relationship uh, with India and China because it doesn't serve its interest vice versa for India and as well as China also so, uh, you know, having a good relationship amongst three is uh, good for all three of it. Uh, but at the same time, you know, India is also clear and it has made it clear that, uh, you know, this uh, coming together, including in the RIC, it's not against any third country, you know, or it's not about anti-West. In fact, this stand uh, is also been taken by India in the Indo-Pacific, like uh, when there were kind of, uh, you know, Russia was questioning uh, that, uh, you know, it being uh, like India being a part of the Quad, is it against uh, Russia or against China? So India has made it clear that uh, it is not against any country, any third country. And in fact, uh, India welcomes Russia's, uh, uh, you know, actions or 
uh, participation participation in the Indo-Pacific. From that perspective, uh, you know, it's a kind of uh, complementary relationship to a large extent. Uh, the way India is, uh, you know, welcoming Russia's uh, uh, engagement in the Indo-Pacific. If you see Russia uh, has also been, uh, you know, inviting India in the Arctic area as well. So uh, both senses, it's been uh, complementing. Of course, there are, uh, you know, issues like uh, we like talk about that, how uh, Russia's relationship with Pakistan uh, and India's relationship with US, uh, you know, create some kind of uh, misunderstanding and all. But uh, let us not also forget that in the highest level, uh, I'm talking about uh, the leaders, they share a very open communication. Their relationship, like exactly like Putin and Xi Jinping, they share a good relationship. Uh, even Mr. Modi and Mr. Putin also shares a good relationship. So that actually helps uh, in, uh, you know, mitigating any kind of uh, misunderstandings and all. Because, uh, you know, the way geopolitics are working, you know, there will be misunderstandings because uh, this is real politic, right? Because uh, each and every country, including India and Russia, we are uh, looking into our national interest. But at the same time, we, uh, both the countries, also take each other's uh, interest and consideration. So we also wouldn't uh, want to do anything which will, uh, you know, jeopardize uh, another's uh, interest. Yeah, I just one thing, you spoke about the Arctic. Why is Russia inviting India to the Arctic? and should India take up that offer? Yeah, in fact, uh, like, again, it is my perception. Like, if you see the way China and Russia does have a relationship and they have, uh, you know, gone ahead in the kind of the comprehensive uh, strategic partnership in this new era, they are talking about this, which actually brings both of them together more, uh, you know. But at the same time, uh, the historical aspect we cannot overlook. So uh, Russia and China, they do not talk about it, but uh, any kind of strategies they have is in a way to contain each other, their power. So uh, Russia, as I uh, you know, see that 2014 has actually pushed, I will use the word push, uh, not only to Asia, but also in the Arctic as well. So in Arctic, uh, it is not only a new Cold War which is coming for Russia and US, at the same time about for China as well, because um, China, which is a non-Arctic country, uh, and it has uh, been a permanent observer, like recently it has been able to, but at the same time it has, uh, you know, started claiming its uh, Arctic uh, thing, which it, its threat for Russia because Russia understands that China is building its militarization also. Like uh, China actually has this uh, nuclear icebreakers. I think it is going with the second one. No, they haven't so, built a nuclear power icebreaker yet. They have one icebreaker, which is conventionally But they power. are uh, They're building, building a nuclear, a nuclear, power, a nuclear. Yeah, that's what. So uh, Russia also understands that if China wants to, uh, you know, assert itself in this region, they will be able to. Because, uh, like, for an example, if you see the distance, it is 900 nautical miles for China towards Arctic. But the way in the defense uh, policy paper of China, the way it has uh, defended its claim in Arctic, it's quite fascinating. So uh, Russia is uh, not only to balance 
right now we know that uh, the sanctions and all which has not been able to help russia to you know bring the technological aspect to explore or exploit the energy aspects in the arctic has uh, made uh, russia bring in the uh, this thing japan south korea they are very much into the technological aspect uh, with india it also uh, first they share a good relationship so bringing india also it's a kind of a positive gesture for india itself and india's horizon also starts expanding because uh, i see it as uh, if russia can go into uh, you know indo pacific and further why not india can't think india can also think and if we keep on looking at the viability in the commercial aspect and all there can be many logical or rational things where we would not have like we should not go ahead with it but uh, i feel it will be good for uh, russia and india to be into that region dr reka so with coming back to the pivot to asia strategy and how india can make the most of this pivot to asia strategy announced by russia I would like to begin by saying that India Russia partnership is a time tested partnership. So whether it is pivot to Asia strategy or whether it is pivot to China strategy at the end we'll have to rely and go back to traditional bilateralism so that our understanding of each other in today's global context is made stronger and more meaningful given the fact that we both have uh, we both share common interest and concerns we both have a world view which matches both our national interest to that is where we feel that every player global player needs to have a say in the global affairs now having said that we cannot also rule out the anxiety that we have at the bilateral level given the fact that both india and russia are pursuing a pragmatic foreign policy we acknowledge that but at the same time there is a need that we convey to russia and russia also conveys if it has certain grievances towards the way india has pursued its foreign policy in recent times uh, where the focus has been not just russia but also us and other uh, western players uh, so uh, india has its grievances that russia is pursuing a foreign policy with pakistan a stronger relations with china with the both the countries which are hostile to india's interests so these things needs to be conveyed a proper communication needs to be used and especially through the traditional bilateralism but then one important factor remains is that eurasian integration depends a lot on how india russia and china conducts itself so our foreign policy along with russia and china's matters a lot whether uh, and we three countries have been uh, major global players who have strongly advocated the establishment of a multipolar uh, world order whether we achieve it at the global level or not that is a billion dollar question but at the regional level especially at the eurasian level we need to have a multipolar system where uh, all major players including small players are all having an equal role in uh, enhancing the integration of eurasia as a whole 
especially russia has this onerous task given the fact that russia primarily associates itself as the eurasian power and the sole proprietor of eurasia as such so if it wants to have a multipolar world order so it should come from russia first the initiative should come from russia where multipolarity should be the uh, new norm in eurasian geopolitics they have to practice what they preach basically exactly yeah. and it is possible main reason being that you have three stable governments in all these three countries it's long term uh, stable governments that we have and putin modi and xi jinping all three share a very good rapport within themselves so it is not an impossible thing to happen integration of eurasia and the uh, wider role of eurasian uh, geopolitics will be possible should these countries work together and take forward a collective effort in promoting not just the interest but also the opportunities and make the most of it and on that optimistic note uh, thank you guys so much for joining me thank you so much for being here at takshila and thank you for listening to all things policy thank you thank you we would love to hear what you think about this chat check us out at our twitter handle at takshila inst on our core space all things policy for the latest analysis and research on technology strategy and economic affairs visit our website at takshila.org.in and tune in for our next episode The Takshashila Institution offers 12-week online courses in public policy, technology policy, and defense and foreign affairs. The courses are ideal for both full-time students and working professionals. Admissions for the September 2019 batch are now open. Visit our website takshashila.org.in for more details.